You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. This is a podcast made in collaboration with the JNNP and the Association of British Neurologists. My name is Ralph Gregory. I'm a consultant neurologist in Dorset. And I have with me today Neil Robertson, who's the Chair of Neurology in Cardiff. Welcome, Neil. Thank you. You very kindly agreed to give us an update on uh, what's new in multiple sclerosis. Where have the sort of major research areas been uh, focused in, in MS? Uh, well, I think it's clearly difficult to cover everything within the period of time that, that we have. Um, but I think that the major advances have been in therapeutics. I think a better understanding of certain treatment risks has evolved with greater experience and some post-market surveillancing of, of certain medications. I think increasingly we are disconcerted about the discrepancy between the apparent effect we have on inflammatory disease, at least by MR markers, and the progression of disease. And so I think we're re-examining a basic pathogenesis and in particular cortical pathology and some of the roles of antibody-mediated pathology which might be relevant in producing a dichotomy between patients perhaps whose pathology is T-cell driven and patients whose pathology is more B-cell or, or immunoglobulin uh, driven. MS therapies are a bit like buses, aren't they? They come along in, in runs. What are the, sort of the new treatments which neurologists are going to be using over the next year or two and the research around them? You're right, there clearly is quite a pipeline of drugs coming along and that, in a sense, creates a lot of problems for physicians in terms of choice. But I think the two new ones that we're really going to have to address in terms of their application in clinical practice is um, BG12 and alemtuzumab. BG12 or fumarate um, is an oral medication, so it's, it's going to be, I think, the fourth in the line of oral medications. And there have been two recent studies, define and confirm, which have been published over the last year, uh, both with placebo arms and some uh, dose variation, but the confirmed study with an active comparator in glutirumate acetate. And I think overall the effects are um, fairly good, so that they certainly have probably the best efficacy figures for the oral medications so far, with reduction in annualised relapse rates of around 50%, and also some reduction in disability uh, progression in the order of around uh, 30%. And uh, what about the sort of side effect profile of uh, these new agents? For fumarate, at least, which was, uh, as you may know, associated with some rather nasty skin reactions in imported um, sofas from China, you would expect to see some side effects. Uh, But actually, it seems relatively well tolerated, and I think that uh, the main symptoms that um, people have seen with the use of this medication is flushing and gastrointestinal symptoms. Uh, And the monitoring, I suspect, will require uh, blood counts to look for lymphopenia and also a deranged liver function test. And what about alatuzumab? Well, alentuzumab, of course, came along with enormous hopes, and I think that it's been a very unusual medication in that many of us have been using it for over a decade now um, before the formal trials were undertaken. So both trials, which were really very eagerly awaited, the CARE-MS1 and CARE-MS2, uh, were published over the last year. And this is an anti-CD52, a monoclonal antibody, which is given on an annual basis and really had very promising phase two results. The two trials uh, really looked at alemtuzumab as a first-line treatment uh, and then in people who had received interferon beforehand. 
In terms of its uh, assessment of efficacy, you need to remember that these two trials have an active comparator, so don't have a placebo. But compared to the active comparator, which was interferon beta-1a, there were reductions in annualised relapse rates of around 50%. But I think rather disappointingly from our point of view, the CARE-MS1 trial really didn't show any reduction in disability, which is something we'd really been expecting. But the CARE-MS2 study did show some reduction in disability. So it does have quite a lot of advantages, the anotuzumab, particularly as it's only given once a year. But I think its greatest concern or the greatest concern about its use has been over adverse events and there's been a very well reported 30% rate of autoimmune diseases which in itself is not a big problem. The issue is uh, the the nature of the autoimmune diseases. So thankfully almost all of the um, adverse events relating to autoimmune disease relate to thyroid disease which in my experience anyway has been relatively easy to control. I think there were concerns uh, from us that we might see a signal emerging with a more sinister autoimmune disease like resistant uh, hemolytic anemia, good pasture syndrome, glomerulonephritis or something else that we perhaps hadn't anticipated. But as the experience of the drug is expanding, we're not really seeing these signals. I think it's something that we are going to have to continue to be aware of, but we don't see those signals as yet. How do you see uh, us uh, beginning to sort of learn how to use these drugs? You know, when do we use one sort of drug? When do we use one of the other less toxic drugs? Yes, I think that's a really big question, uh, and I think there are two schools of thought. Um, uh, and one is that you need to hit the disease hard and early, uh, and that you should use fairly aggressive drugs at the beginning and then maintain it, and then have a, an alternative drug which maintains it with perhaps slightly a slower, a lower risk profile. But the other um, view is the stratified escalation of treatment, going from ABC drugs to now some of the oral medications and then perhaps the monoclonal antibodies afterwards. I think we really don't know, and I think there clearly may well be risks with uh, the long-term use of more aggressive uh, treatments, and I think that we all need to have more experience using these medications in order to define treatment regimes going forward. What research has there been recently trying to help us to understand why it is that, that often people do a lot worse than you expect them to do by what we can do to their MRI scans? Increasingly, we are concentrating on uh, cortical pathology as a substrate for the progressive component dis- disability. And it's certainly true that some of the you know, anti-inflammatory drugs that we use seem to be extraordinarily effective at reducing or even abolishing MR disease activity, uh, but also clinical relapse activity. But nevertheless, we still see people accumulating disability. Uh, And I think, as has been well reported before, uh, I think the clue may well be in the cortical pathology. And cortical pathology is becoming an increasing uh, target for neurological research, in particular looking at some inflammatory cortical pathology and also demyelinating cortical pathology, which we don't really see in in day-to-day MR scannings that we use in our clinic. I think increasingly we'll need to design treatments which are active against the cortical pathology, uh, but also have a way of measuring uh, cortical pathology in a more effective way in, in clinical trials. How might we do that? What possible methods are there for that? Well, I think that's difficult, uh, and there are new imaging methods that are coming up that have the ability to look at cortical pathology in in more detail, uh, other than simply atrophy, Uh, but the details of that really are quite a specialist area. So we're all familiar with sort of the role of T-cells in MS and what have you. Um, What's new uh, 
in other aspects of the immune response. Well, I think the really interesting thing that's popped up maybe over the last year, although has been known about for a long time, is the role of immunoglobulins or autoantibodies in pathology and multiple sclerosis. Now, there are two very interesting papers that have come out over the last uh, year or so. One is from a group in Scotland which uh, used a bioassay to detect and quantify patient-derived immunoglobulins to mediate pathology, demyelination, axonal injury, and identifying that around 30% of people had some uh, complement-dependent demyelinating IgG response, uh, which rather suggests a, a pathological heterogeneity. So it may well be that in the future we're looking at um, uh, individuals who have antibody-mediated or predominantly antibody or B-cell-mediated disease on the one hand, and then another group of patients who have predominantly T-cell-mediated disease. And that was taken a little step further in a recent publication in the New England Journal of Medicine which identified the potassium channel KLR 4.1 as an immune target in multiple sclerosis uh, and teeters against that, uh, assays against that antibody were present in around 50% of patients with multiple sclerosis but not present in uh, normal controls or other disease controls. So it may well be that's something that uh, we potentially might be using in the future as a diagnostic test for MS but also uh, a therapeutic stratification test but clearly it needs further validation and um, interrogation. What, what relevance do you think these uh potassium channels could have to pathogenicity? Well, I think that's yet to consider, but I think it is very interesting that amylaride, which was recently used as a therapeutic agent to try in, a, in one of the first progressive disease trials, was active. Its target is uh, against a, a channel which um, modifies potassium ingress into cells. So it may be that that is all linked up, and it may be simply that the ingress of potassium uh, really is one of the primary pathogenic events in multiple sclerosis. Oh, that's very interesting. So the other thing we sort of struggle with epidemiologically is uh, the wide difference in incidence and prevalence of, of MS. Is there any further work in, in that area? Well, there are, of course, um, lots of regional studies relating to multiple sclerosis, but um, one of the uh, regions which has been studied the longest is the uh, north of Scotland, in particular the Orkneys and Shetland Islands. And they recently re-looked at their prevalence data and the UK retains its place as the highest prevalence in the world for MS, and in Orkneys it's 410 per 100,000. So that's a fairly spectacular prevalence that really needs continuing investigation. And I think that for all of the emphasis that we currently have on therapy and pathology, the rising incidence of rising prevalence of disease is something that maybe is uh, swept a little under the table and we need to understand why the frequency of disease seems to be continuing to increase in uh, populations, particularly in the north of Scotland. And we tend to, to think about that being uh, an environmental issue, um, but, but maybe it's, it's, it's also genetic. Have there been any developments in the genetics field of hope in the wide genome screen and all that sort of thing? Well, the, the whole genome screen, as you know, uh, which was um, performed under the umbrella of the International MS Genetics Consortium, was published in 2011, identifying 50 uh, non-HLA disease-associated genes. And I think the question for perhaps general neurologists is, is what relevance might those have? And certainly the research, I think my impression is that it's paused a little bit and that people have considered what the implications of those genetic findings might be. Uh, and while people are scurrying off to understand what functional aspects of the genes might be relevant, 
Other groups have looked at phenotypic associations. And I think the big message from those is that we are unlikely to identify a phenotypic association um, with those genes. It may be that we can look a little harder at epistatic phenomena to see where the genes interact to cause a phenotypic change. But I think that those genes are not going to be used in the, in the general clinic. And they're much more likely to provide us with hints at therapeutic targets for the future. And pregnancy is another thing that we struggle with in clinic and advising um, patients what to do about pregnancy if they've got MS. Is there anything uh, new in that area? Well, there are some uh, epidemiological signals that have come out over the last uh, year or so. They are quite interesting and need a little bit further investigation. I think that one particularly relevant one is that there does seem to be quite a significant increase in MS disease activity after IVF. And with an ageing population where mothers tend to be older, particularly in developed countries, we need to be aware of that in terms of advice and uh, support to um, women who, are, who have MS who, who are considering IVF. And so what happens there? It's after they've had an IVF pregnancy that they're... Their MS becomes more active? No, it's during IVF treatment. So it's during the the intervention, the hormonal intervention in and around that time. So again, another signal that, um, you know, perhaps not surprising that hormones may be relevant in pathogenesis. So if we were having this conversation in a a couple of years' time, what do you think we'd be talking about then? Well, I think we'd be looking at the results of the immunochip and some uh, more fine mapping work that's come out of the genome screen. I think that um, all of the geneticists will be starting to look at preliminary epistatic analysis, so in other words, the interaction between genes that have been identified, and that the, those genes need a little bit more functional interrogation, and I suspect that those will be a, a target for interrogation, particularly the uh, KIF21B gene. And I think that we'll be seeing pathological studies which are directed at new targets for uh, progressive disease. We'll see some of the new in first insights into stem cell transplantation and undoubtedly there'll be more therapeutic agents which will even further complicate and confuse clinicians looking after multiple sclerosis. But I do expect there to, to start to be a greater number of drug trials for progressive disease and I think it'd be interesting that some of the clues over the last few years may be maturing into thoughts about anti-complement therapies as well. Well, Neil, it's been a pleasure talking to you today, and uh, on behalf of the ABN and the JNMP, I'd like to thank you very much. My pleasure. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.